If God is only knowable through reason, as a growing number of European Christian thinkers began to espouse during the Enlightenment, then what does that mean for those trying to solve the problem of evil? During the 18th century, one school of thought doubled down on this rationalist approach and ended up being the bridge to the death of God in Western thought. While simultaneously, another group of thinkers began to question whether or not reason is the best path to knowing God and understanding his world. You're listening to part 11 in our Problem of Evil series. We're going through over 2,000 years of history, theology, and philosophy in the Christian tradition to try to better understand how Christians of varying denominational backgrounds and philosophical commitments have tried to address one of the most difficult problems in humanity's quest for meaning. My name is Paul Anleitner, and thanks for listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. Before we begin, I want to give an extra special thanks to all of the new Patreon supporters who have jumped aboard the Deep Talks Patreon community and are giving their support to ensure that I can continue to give away free theological, philosophical education to provide not only lectures like this, but high-level conversations and interviews with theologians, philosophers, scientists, pastors, artists, and generally interesting people from around the globe. In order to keep doing that, to do it without advertisements, and to continue to offer free theological education via this platform and other platforms like video, I am asking for 300 patrons to support the work on Patreon, 300 patrons that can come along and join with the work that I'm doing so I can keep giving it away. Right now we're about 20 to 25% of the way through that goal of hitting 300 patrons. I think we've got about some 70 to 75 people in the Deep Talks Patreon community. It's actually also a great place to have discussion that's not on uh, such an open platform like Twitter or Facebook where you might get into a bunch of arguments and people chiming in that might just be trolls, you know, trying to mess with, you know, the conversations you're trying to have about these deep ideas. Um, It's been encouraging to see some some more discussion happening around posts that I'm putting on uh, my Patreon page as well. So you can check that out in the link provided again asking for 300 patrons this summer so i can keep this program ad free and accessible to anybody with an internet connection well i hope you enjoy today's episode we are in the 18th century which means we are almost near the completion of this rather um, ambitious project I've undertaken to go through 2,000 plus years of history in theology and philosophy in the Christian tradition to try to better understand how people have tried to address the problem of evil. So we're almost there, only a couple more (laughs) centuries to go. But there's some real fun, innovative, and often really difficult, high-level concepts that emerge over these next few centuries, which are valuable contributions to our own processing of the problem of evil. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. 
In part 10, we talked about the rise of natural theology, and we looked at one philosopher, mathematician, theologian named Gottfried Leibniz, who might be the best example of the sort of enlightenment, rationalist approach to the problem of evil. Natural theology and rationalism gave birth to a relatively short-lived but historically important religious phenomenon in Western Europe and North America. This movement became known as deism. Deism is particularly important in American history due to the number of influential deists who were leaders during that Revolutionary War era. People like Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, that's just a few men we could name from this era who had deistic commitments and were pretty pivotal in the founding of this new United States of America. It, it can be hard when we talk about deism to give a concise list of doctrines that deists believed in because they never really organized into any sort of religious community. They never coalesced around any sort of creedal statement. But we could summarize deism, even with its various kinds, as sharing some of these features or beliefs. And it's important, even though it's a relatively short-lived phenomenon, it's important not just if you're an American listening to this to understand the impact of deism on our national history, but to understand how deism led to several other reactions to deistic thought. Okay, so here's some of the common features or beliefs of deism. First, Deists would believe that God is ultimate reality and God is the prime mover who set about the sort of Newtonian universe of cause and effect. I'd say the second important idea we should know about deism, especially as it connects to our study on the problem of evil, is this concept. Deists would say that because God is transcendent and omniscient, just like in classical versions of Christian theism, the universe he made is a perfectly functioning machine. God doesn't need to step into history, doesn't need to intervene in the affairs of human beings, etc., because to do so, from this line of thinking, to do so would be an acknowledgement of God's failure to have made the perfect machine-like universe. If the machine is faulty, well, whose fault is that, right? If the machine is faulty, then it would either be because of God's incompetence or his intentional doing. And if it's because of his intentional design, then maybe we shouldn't even think of evil as evil. I know that was one problem a listener had with Leibniz's sort of best of all possible worlds view and his his uh, category of metaphysical evil, which, as we've talked about before, isn't original to Leibniz. But this idea that in order for there to be a contingent creation, which is distinct and separate from a perfect creator, that there would necessarily need to be some form of what we might call metaphysical defects or metaphysical evils to borrow Leibniz's language. Somebody reached out to me and said, ah, I don't know how I feel about that because doesn't that mean, doesn't that mean that God is a faulty 
designer if these designs in creation are the best he can do. And I think that's a valid point, and it's something that the deist took a step further. Now, the next main idea or shared belief held among many deists, especially the more influential deists, would have been this shared value that preventing moral evil, those things which we perceive as moral evil, is an admirable goal. Even if the machinery of the universe, from a metaphysical sense, might be operating as it should, many deists strive to still name the existence of right and wrong, of ethical right and wrong. And they still tried to come up with a barometer for discerning what morally acceptable and unacceptable behavior in the world is. So many deists like a Thomas Jefferson uh, would have said there is a right and wrong way to live in the world and we should strive to live rightly and justly in the world. The key difference might be in dis- from the key difference I should say say from traditional classical versions of Christianity is in how one discerns the way they should act in the world. So for the deist, discerning how one should act in the world comes from studying the machinery of the universe using the faculties of reason. Doing this and discerning this is what we could call natural law. And and there's a, a long history even of of Christians. We could even go all the way back to Aquinas, for example, affirming natural law, that God has given people the faculties of reason so that they could use those faculties. Even people who are not Christians can employ these faculties to discern what's right and wrong in the world. Now, the key difference is for someone like Aquinas that there was also another category, another pathway to discerning this separate category of law, this this law that emanates from God that may only be discernible through something like what we could call special revelation. But for deists, we, we don't we don't resort to special revelation. What we need to use and employ are our faculties of reason, discerning and studying the machinery of the universe to help us understand how we should act in the world. For many deists, um, Jesus would have been an example of a, a teacher of perfect natural law. So you take a guy like Thomas Jefferson, for example, and Thomas Jefferson infamously put together his own gospel, all right? So he took the the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and tried to compile them together and to put together his own version of the gospel that fits within this deistic frame. So you'd find as you read through this, and this is uh, public domain, so you can go online and just search for Jefferson's Bible and you can read it for yourself. used to be a fun exercise I would do with students in my classroom as we would go through and read, you know, Jefferson's Bible and try to compare and contrast with the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And as you do this, one of the things that would immediately stand to you is the removal of miracles, you know, because that doesn't fit within the deistic frame that Jefferson is operating from. You don't need to have miracles. Miracles are irrational. They break the laws of nature. Why would God need to do that if he's perfect and omniscient and all-powerful? 
why would he need to step in to, let's say, the affairs of a blind person or a paralyzed person and and heal them to step into their situation? It doesn't make sense. And the other thing you'll notice is Jefferson's emphasis on Jesus's moral teaching, because in Jefferson's mind, Jesus is like a perfect teacher of natural law. So he has, in a sense, a high regard for Christ as a teacher of truth, but yet he rejects what Christians have said is the the thing that makes Christ authoritative, and that is his status as the only incarnate Son of God, fully God, fully human. Now, why is this important to our understandings of the problem of evil throughout history? So far, I haven't mentioned really anything about theodicy per se, but, but this is why uh, studying and understanding deism is really important, not, not just, again, as a student maybe of American history, but it's important that we understand what deism did to serve as a transitional bridge into secularism and naturalism. In deism, God was the clockmaker who built the clock, wound it up, and set it to run. But... What happens if the use of reason to discern from the machinery of the universe what the clockmaker is like leads you to doubt the goodness or competency of this clockmaker? Let's say as a, a good rationalist of the Enlightenment, you're trying to understand the nature of God. You're trying to understand moral right and wrong. You're wrestling with the problem of evil purely from a rationalist perspective. And as you are studying the machinery of the universe, as your knowledge grows and you begin to understand how expansive the universe is, maybe how much older, and this does become a factor in the, in the 19th century, more so than the 18th century. But as you begin to study the world, you begin to find out how old it is and perhaps how long death has been happening on the planet and you see, begin to maybe see a, a natural world, which is like Tennyson said, red in tooth and claw. Well, maybe you begin to doubt the, either the competency or the goodness of the clockmaker. And as you remove God from interacting in a way that would be in keeping with the historic Christian tradition, and you reserve God's role to just being prime mover, the, the, the being that presses the first domino that sets up a near infinite series of cause and effect in the dominoes of the universe. And, and you see a universe that's beginning and the more you study it to, to maybe from your vantage point appear chaotic and expansive and makes humans feel minuscule and, and makes the, the reality of suffering and the amount of suffering that's happened in the world seem insurmountable. You might just go, I don't know about this clockmaker at all. I don't even see necessarily the advantage of believing in a clockmaker maker, maybe all that we have is just a random clock, a random machine that, that from studying the machinery of this random machine doesn't feel like it was made by an intentional, um, intelligent, good 
all-powerful clockmaker. So that's really important that we get that because deism ends up serving as this theological and philosophical bridge into secularism and naturalism. In the face of this growing feeling that the problem of evil created just too many problems for the rationalism of Leibniz or the rationalism of the deists, new voices emerged who tried to turn to entirely different approaches. And and we need to explore some of these perspectives over the next few episodes. And I think it's fairly crucial if we are going to understand some of these alternative approaches to the rationalism of the Enlightenment, that we understand one of the the godfathers of alternative approaches, not just to the problem of evil, but to philosophy and theology in Western thought in the modern era. And that's in the work of Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant lived from 1724 to 1804, and during this period, the the Enlightenment had started to produce this, this growing culture of people who began to really despise religion. And I'm talking about people like Voltaire and David Hume, for example. You could think of them like the, the precursor to the modern new atheists, Kant read the work of David Hume, who, again, you can kind of think of as a a much more philosophically serious version of, say, Richard Dawkins. And as Kant read Hume, he, he said that Hume actually woke him from his, quote, dogmatic slumber, end quote. Being German, Kant was baptized as an infant into the Lutheran church, but we should understand the sort of particular stream within Lutheranism that Kant's family was a part of. Kant's parents were pietists, and if you're not familiar with pietism, you should be familiar with, become familiar with this movement that happened throughout church history, especially this is a a movement that's a, a sort of subset of Protestantism, in particular Lutheranism. Pietism began in Germany as a movement to return to what they would call apostolic simplicity, with an emphasis on things like religious zeal and personal devotion, and and relatively new ideas emerged out of the pietist movement, like, like small group Bible studies without the aid of a priest. So if you're part of a church that does something like a Bible study or a small group with a Bible study, you can thank the pietists for that. That really wasn't happening in, obviously, either in Catholic streams or in Protestant streams like Lutheranism until this pietist movement. Now, you could say it happened much earlier in the early church, but that was kind of the point that the pietists were trying to return to this apostolic simplicity. They thought that the the Orthodox Lutheran Church of the state of Germany had become um, too pompous, too steeped in rationalism. It became a, a sort of religious expression of the elite in Germany. And Kant's parents just, they weren't having it, along with many other people in this, this pietist movement. 
Pietism placed a heavy emphasis on faith and the subjective, discerning God's special revelation as being the primary activity Christians should do instead of what the pietists perceived to be as the overemphasis on the use of reason to know God in general revelation. Kant's view of religion was influenced by two longtime friends named Johann Hamann and Johann Herder. And it's important that we know some of the contributions of these guys on Kant's thinking, because as we begin to delve into Kant and you try to read Kant, and Kant's, he's a hard, hard read. So, you know, good luck. You might want to pick up some good secondary sources on Kant before trying to read Kant alone. Uh, I think if we look at the maybe some of the beliefs of Kant's influential friends, it might help us understand uh, Kant's philosophy and theology and, as we are going to get to here, uh, how Kant tried to deal with the problem of evil. So Johann Hamann, he was known for his fierce critique of the Enlightenment's emphasis on reason and the critique that that the Enlightenment had gotten something wrong about reason. In particular, Hamann thought that reason shouldn't be looked at as the chief means to knowledge, and instead he preferred what we might call a, a primary emphasis on the mystical or the intuitive aspects of faith to being superior to reason as the means to knowledge, and in particular to the means of knowledge about God and his world. Hamann, along with Herder, they provoked Kant throughout his life to constantly reassess the relationship between faith and reason. And just as a side note, I think understanding pietism is really crucial to understanding a lot of modern uh, evangelicalism and the roots of several prominent evangelical denominations. So, for example, you might have something like the Evangelical Free Church or the Evangelical Covenant Church. Those were really birthed out of pietist movements. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing. It's just important to understand these roots. And, and that's where, you know, maybe it might be common in some of those evangelical traditions for there to be a primary emphasis on things like like reading the Bible, of having Bible studies, of personal devotion, religious zeal. And a lot of these ideas, pietist ideas, map on quite neatly to impulses you find in charismatic and Pentecostal streams, uh, which have their emphasis on apostolic simplicity. But, right, as a, as a downside, you might experience uh, what a lot of people experience in these diverse evangelical settings is a, a sense that you have to check your head at the door. And this is a tension. This is a tension within Protestant traditions influenced by pietism and the tension maybe between low, what we call low church and high church experiences is this tension between the role of reason in the life of a follower of Jesus with more pietist emphasis being on faith and the subjective and on special revelation where you might have other high church traditions that might have a, uh, even outside of Protestantism, that might have a, a stronger emphasis 
on the use of reason. I just bring that up as an important side trail just to help you even understand maybe a little bit of where your spiritual context is situated within that long-standing debate and discussion. Understanding that Lutheran pietism was a significant part of Kant's cultural context, we should also be aware of one of the great philosophical debates that was happening during this period too. And it was happening between people who thought there was different epistemologies. In epistemology, if you're not familiar with that term, that just simply means that the discipline of figuring out how we know what's true. How do we come to discern truth? How do we know things? So you had this really intense philosophical debate happening around the same time in Germany that Lutheran pietism was on the rise. The debate took place between people who thought that the way we come to know true things about reality is through reason alone, and we can call those people rationalists, and debate between them and people who believed that sense experience is the only way of knowing truth. Those people were known as empiricists, like they use their empirical senses to discern and know truth. Kant gave and dedicated much of his life's work to, to trying to find an alternative, a, a third way that might mediate this problem altogether. So here's the alternative that Kant came up with, trying to bridge the gap between rationalism and empiricism, trying to figure out, is there another way, a third way, an alternative that mitigates or maybe even just provides an entirely different way of thinking from the rationalists and the empiricists? So here's Kant's alternative. Knowledge comes from experience, but our minds have these pre-existing categories or file folders that, that filter and organize those experiences. Now, maybe as you hear that, you might go, hmm, uh, isn't this like Plato and Plotinus who we talked about what seems like a year ago? Maybe it was a year ago. <laughs> isn't this like Plato and Plotinus who thought there were these pre-existing perfect forms of things that exist in this more, and they exist in these this more the spiritual domain that our minds try to connect our experience of physical things to, right? That, that sort of platonic idealism. No, Kant's philosophy is not platonic idealism. For Kant, these categories and file folders, if we can call them that, these categories and file folder folders we organize our experiences into are simply mental constructs. They are not these eternal pre-existing forms like in Platonism. They are just categories, pre-existing categories that just exist in our mind. So Kant, he, he doesn't deny, I should make this clear, Kant doesn't deny that there is a, a realm of spirit or what he might prefer to call a, a noumenal realm, N-O-U-M-E-N-A-L, noumenal realm, or a realm of absolute reality. 
but he he believes that the best we can do about that noumenal realm, that spiritual domain, that absolute reality, the best we can do is hypothesize about that realm. The, the noumenal realm is ultimately beyond our knowing. What we have access to is the physical or the phenomenological world. We only have access to that domain while acknowledging that our sense perception of that world isn't an unfiltered, purely objective experience. This is key to understand Kant. He, he doesn't deny that the noumenal, the spiritual, the absolute, the platonic world in some sense exists. He's not denying that. But what he contends is that we only have access to the physical and the phenomenological world via reason, via sense experience. And even with that, Kant is adamant that we don't experience that phenomenological world in an unfiltered, purely objective way because our minds act as an interpretive file folder system. So the, the phenomenological world that we perceive through our senses is always interpreted through this pre-existing system of, we could maybe think of it as Tupperware containers. That's, that's a crude illustration. It's overly simplistic, but maybe it's helpful. We, we get an experience that our, our senses perceive, but in order to, to make them into a coherent sense, a coherent experience of consciousness, they have to get sorted and put into different Tupperware containers, if you will, uh, different file folders that help us make sense of the phenomenological world. For example, here's, here's an example. Um, time. Time isn't a purely objective entity for Kant. Time isn't a purely objective entity that exists separate from us. No, for Kant, what we call time is a, it's a category of experience that our mind has a file for that's there to help us make sense and to, to make meaning of our experience of the phenomenological world. But it isn't it's not an objective thing that exists separate from us. You know, we make clocks in order to help us, you know, find some cohesive way together to, to have a shared experience that we can mark times of the day, that we can set up meetings together with. But that experience, again, this is Kant's opinion, that experience isn't objective. Objective Time isn't an objective reality. It's an experience that we have of reality that we put into a category. The technical term that some philosophers use to describe the school of thought from Kant is called transcendental idealism. And you might be going, Paul, why did we unpack all this stuff? I'm here to sort of sort through what Christians 
have thought about the problem of evil and to try to understand and make sense of evil and suffering in the world. And I get that, but you have to understand Kant's transcendental idealism in order to understand Kant's contribution to theodicy and how he attempts to address the problem of evil. Understanding Kant's transcendental idealism is central to understanding Kant's theodicy. Because God's existence happens in the noumenal realm or in the, if you prefer to call it the absolute spiritual domain, whatever term you want to describe it as, and because knowledge of that domain exists beyond the boundaries of reason and sense experience, much of our debate about metaphysics and theology can't be reduced to rational arguments. It is beyond the limits of rationality and empiricism. It is in a domain that transcends that. God exists in that noumenal realm, you know, that that realm that might be a the platonic sort of realm of ideals. Accepting that some things are beyond our rational or empirical knowing, according to Kant, helps us address some of the problems of evil that we wrestle with. For example, take one significant problem with moral evil and God's goodness and justice in the world, and let's Let's, for the sake of argument, go back all the way to the beginning of our series, um, back when we started with the book of Job. Job is about a righteous, he's about a righteous man. Job is about as righteous as a human being can get. That's how he's described in the story. And yet, there doesn't appear to be any rational connection between Job's good, virtuous living and the rewards or punishments that Job has to endure for that virtue. Job leads a good, virtuous life, but experiences the worst evil and suffering imaginable. And as we discussed in part one of this series, any sort of coherent retribution principle or or, no, or notions of a, a universal karma system seem to be debunked in the life of Job. As another example, the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes in the, the biblical book, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, he seems to feel that there's no coherent rational connection between moral living and the reward of happiness and well-being either. But for Kant, because God's existence and governance exists in the noumenal realm beyond the bounds of reason and sense experience, it shouldn't surprise us that there isn't a rational, coherent principle that connects virtuous living to positive outcomes. We, we shouldn't be surprised by that because God's existence, God's very existence, God's being, God's character, and God's governance of reality exists all within this realm that's beyond knowing. It's beyond knowing in the empirical and rationalist sense. And this is, this is why, guys, this is why it was necessary for us to unpack a little bit of Kant's contextual background, his family background and upbringing in the pietist tradition, and to understand perhaps even the influences of some of his friends that, that had this emphasis on 
mystical, intuitive, revelatory experiences being superior to rationalism. You can see, you can see that in Kant's philosophy. You can see that as he tries to address, or some might say not address, the problem of evil. We can't discern any rational pattern of why some good people suffer while some evil people lead perfectly, what seems to be perfectly happy lives because there isn't a rational principle that our minds can deduce about a God who exists in the noumenal realm, in this, a God who is spirit, cannot be reduced to the, the mind file categories that we have when we go and try to explore and experience and understand the phenomenological world. For Kant, right, it, it just, it shouldn't surprise us that the God and the God who governs and exists in this noumenal realm, this realm beyond the phenomenological physical world, this transcendent God, that we shouldn't in within our reason and sense experience of the world, that we, we shouldn't be surprised if there isn't a rational, coherent principle that connects something like living a virtuous life to positive outcomes. If ethics, which comes from God, if ethics come from God in the noumenal realm, if they do, then they're beyond the limits of reason. And then we shouldn't presume to understand what the full consequence of virtuous living or sinful moral evil should do in the world. It is not reducible to rational principles, which is why for someone like Kant, you could take a character, a person like Job, and look at their life and you go, it doesn't make sense. And Kant would go, you're right. Doesn't make sense. It's beyond sense-making. If we could figure out this system, if there was some sort of retribution principle system or, or universal karma, if we could figure this out, then to quote Kant, quote, Hope for reward and fear of punishment would take the place of moral motives, end quote, which is kind of a similar conclusion that people like John Walton, Tremper Longman III have come to, Old Testament scholars have come to as they've attempted to grapple with the book of Job is to say, hey, you know what? The retribution principle was on trial, and it's not the retribution principle that governs the world. Um, because if it would, then it actually, that system, we would learn how to simply game that system. And in doing so, we would actually not learn and develop the proper moral motives that God wants to see in humanity. Maybe you don't find that to be a satisfactory answer. That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. I, I'm just sharing it with you, all right? For Kant, the entire business of defending God against the moral or natural evils we experience in the world is a result of, quote, presumptuous reason failing to recognize its limitations, end quote. 
If one wishes to defend an all-powerful and all-good God in the face of evil, then they would need to demonstrate that, for example, that what we think of as evil isn't just what we experience as contrary to our perceptions of happiness. That we would have to demonstrate that there isn't a larger good purpose, but that might be beyond the bounds of our computational ability. We would have to be able to demonstrate that there aren't counter-purposive events, as he calls them, that are actually contrary to the will of God. How are we supposed to discern and understand the will of God good enough to know that even the experiences of evil that, that we have, that we believe are evil, aren't actually just part of, let's say, even for Kant, unintentional consequences of how the universe functions. There's black holes in the universe for some reason. If you get too close to a, a black hole like um, like Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar, you're going to get sucked in and maybe not into a portal of love where you can somehow travel through time and warn your daughter in the past and the present of future events. Maybe that's not what happens. Maybe that uh, you go through that black hole and you just, it kills you, right? You know, if you experience that, you know what? That that could just be part for Kant, an unintentional consequence of how the universe, the universe functions. It might not necessarily be evil. Again, the wisdom, the governance of God is in that numinal realm. It's It's beyond our capacities for... For reason and an empirical experience to be able to discern. Kant believed that there has never been a theodicy. There has never been a theodicy in philosophical history, in Christian theology, that's effectively removed all doubt about God. That it's an impossible endeavor. No theodicy can effectively remove all doubt about God. So the answer to the problem of evil for Kant isn't rational or empirical knowledge, but it's faith. Now, critiques that this sort of perspective leads to in a, an irrational Christian religion that, that makes God the subject of purely speculative intuition, that those, those critiques were hurled at Kant from the get-go. So if you're experiencing now, even as you become more familiar with Kant's ideas, you're not alone. Those critiques were there from the get-go. But in response, we should we should try to hear Kant in, in his own on his own terms to really wrestle with these ideas and see maybe maybe Kant, in a sense, and not trying to figure out the problem of evil anymore, has figured out the problem of evil. We don't want to dismiss that. So in response, even to the the critiques at that time that you know, this was, you know, Kant was espousing something that was irrational um, and that he was maybe leading people too close into some sort of trajectory on a trajectory that would lead them into interpreting and understanding the world through speculative intuition or something like that. In response, Kant tried to demonstrate that reason and faith weren't at odds per se, but were instead, you, you should think of them as concentric circles with reason as the inner circle, but supra-rational, and by supra, S-U-P-R-A, I mean beyond, not in conflict, but beyond 
rational, super rational religious experience and faith as the outer circle. So two circles, reason, and you could throw in, you know, empirical experience as an inner circle, and on the outer circle, a super rational religious experience of faith. In the inner circle, we could deduce things like moral concepts. We could even decry evil. We can actually deduce moral concepts. We may be able to, all people may be able to, using reason and using their sense experience, figure out that there is a moral right and wrong, and they can use that knowledge in the inner circle to, you know, come up with moral frameworks and decry evil. And doing so, this is key for Kant's ethics and to help us understand how that connects to Kant's theodicy, we can use that knowledge that we have in that innermost circle, which allows us to use reason, sense, experience, to deduce moral concepts, to cry evil, etc. We can do that, and when we do that, what it should do is it should point us to the existence of the outer circle, that noumenal realm. That experience, the experience that there are moral right and wrongs, should lead us to the existence of an outer circle the, and the existence of an ultimate lawgiver who is God. In his 1794 Religions Within the Boundaries of Mere Reason, I say 1974, 1794, religions within the boundaries of mere reason, Kant argued for the existence of what he called, quote, radical evil. Now, you can actually, if you to go through that book or you maybe to read some secondary uh, sources or tertiary sources on that book, um, you would perhaps be able to see some resonance with Lutheran ideas of original sin, which, of course, kind of going back through all of our series, Luther, Luther believed that he was reviving this idea from the, uh, from the true Augustinian tradition. As you did, as you, if you were to do that, you would begin to actually see some similarities, but you'd also find some notable differences between Kant's idea of radical evil and something like the Lutheran, Augustinian, and Calvinist notions of original sin. And in, in, in these differences, you'd find uh, that, that Kant didn't win himself many friends in his contemporary circles. He seemed to just make everybody upset. In this book, Religions Within the Boundaries of Mere Reason, Kant argued we have this innate predisposition towards good or evil, which we activate through the use of free will. He also said we are, we are innately aware of a moral Law, So that might be something that could be similar to historic Christian concepts in the Lutheran, Calvinist, Augustinian tradition, uh, and even the Catholic tradition, too, or Eastern Orthodox tradition, this idea that we have an innate moral compass. Kant believed that too, but, you know, he his emphasis was that we actually— this thing exists within us, but we choose to follow or veer away from it. You know, maybe it's one of those pre-existing categories and constructs of our mind that we actually are able to perceive the phenomenological world and to discern good from evil, that that's built into us. 
But, and this is really key, I want to make sure you catch this too, is that there is this radical evil that exists outside of us and it, it tempts us. It, it leads us away from the good. And, you know, and Kant's kind of ambiguous. Is this just mythological? In a mythological way, is he speaking? But it's actually kind of, it fits, his ambiguity fits his philosophical philosophical framework because if this radical evil, if it is a, a spiritual force, maybe that exists in this higher noumenal realm too, this realm that we we can't fully know. And, you know, even as another aside, understanding um, Kant is going to be central to even understanding people like uh, psychologists like Carl Jung. My entire podcast started by breaking down the theology of Jordan Peterson as the Jordan Peterson phenomenon was probably at its climax. You're going to see these ideas, this sort of, well, I've reached the limit of what I can say um, confidently is true. I've reached the limit of it. And that Kantian influence is central to you understanding people like, again, like, like a Carl Jung, like a, a Jordan Peterson. But for Kant, going back to Kant, how how do we deal with this radical evil, acknowledging that our experience in the phenomenological world and the existence of morality that we experience there may also point to both there being a, 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 a in the noumenal realm, a moral ultimate lawgiver in God, and may also point to some sort of principality, empower a radical evil outside of us, what can we do with that information? And this is this is Kant's, you know, way of maybe giving some sort of uh, a missional call to his readers to consider the existential way that they can address the problem of evil in the world. While he acknowledges the limits of human reasoning and empiricism to discern these noumenal realm ideas, Kant believes that all we should do is just simply follow the moral example and teaching of Jesus. For Kant, this this is the way that humanity is to defeat this radical evil. So Kant is, I'm including him in this series, while many people, especially in evangelical settings, are not going to look at Kant and go, hey, that guy's a Christian philosopher. Um, Certainly he has unorthodox ideas that would probably, you're probably not going to have, you know, if you go to an Assemblies of God church or a Baptist church or you know, a pietist Lutheran church, you're, you're probably, you're probably not going to get up and let Kant preach on a Sunday morning per se, but Kant is really, he's trying to stay within the Christian framework, at least some semblance of a Christian framework to give people a a missiological, if you will, an existential focus to how they can actually do something about the problem of evil. And for Kant, the way you do something and about the problem of evil isn't by speculating about what might be beyond you, but it's by following the moral example and teaching of Jesus. That's the way humanity defeats the, quote, radical evil. 
We do this through establishing ethical communities that follow Jesus's moral guidance. Now, rationalist philosophers and the the growing religious skeptic philosophers lampooned Kant. They just like, you know, for them, notions of radical evil and you know, it's just sounded too much like superstitious Christianity with its demons and devils and those things that, you know, us modern people, that we modern people have left behind. And simultaneously, like, Orthodox Lutherans weren't wild about his ideas because they weren't wild about it either because they didn't see these ideas as close enough to what they considered authentic Christian doctrine. But Kant's impact in philosophy, theology, and discussions on the problem of evil are undeniable. In our next episode, we'll explore other European Christian thinkers who, like Kant, doubted that reason was the supreme path to knowledge of God and thought there may be better ways to reconcile the problem of evil. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I want to tell you about a couple of things that are happening over on the Deep Talks Patreon page. First of all, for all subscribers to the Deep Talks Patreon community at any level of support, you can access uh, the episode I did with Greg Boyd addressing my questions with open theism as someone who was a longtime card-carrying open theist but has had my doubts over the years i talked with greg boyd about one of my doubts and see if greg can talk me back into it so that's available for anybody in the deep talks patreon community even if you're just making a contribution at the two dollar a month level There's also the Get to Know Your Neighbor's Religion series. It's a series of articles I'm doing trying to help people better understand the major world religions, religions that maybe even your neighbor or the person you bump into the grocery store is a practitioner of. And I'm trying to do this in a way that's respectful to those religious traditions. It's not the sort of angry apologetics guy that's just there to show you what's wrong with it, but so that you can really fully appreciate why your neighbor might believe this and why you might be able to have a meaningful conversation with them. And finally, you will be able to, if you're over uh, a subscriber on YouTube, or you can go over and check out my YouTube page. Last week, I released a documentary, a 25 to 30-minute documentary on the theological and philosophical symbolism in Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Yes, the 2016 divisive superhero flick that didn't get a high score on Rotten Tomatoes, but to me actually contained some very, very serious theological and philosophical ideas that you don't normally see on this level in comic book films. And so with the coming hashtag Snyder Cut uh, happening of Justice League in 21 coming, uh, 2021 coming to HBO, and there's a renewed interest in exploring the ideas in Snyder's movies, I thought it'd be great to unpack what I thought think is one of the most misunderstood comic book movies. So that's over my YouTube page if you like to, uh, you know, browse YouTube for that sort of stuff. 
you can go over and subscribe on the Deep Talks YouTube page as well. Today's episode and all of these sorts of activities are not possible without the support of the Deep Talks Patreon community. I want to give extra special thanks to those people at the Theology 201 level or higher, people like Micah, um, Paul Frank Spencer, Stephen Meyer, Sarah R., BJL, Sean Carey, Josie, Eli Carey, uh, Luke Hartsock, Tim Kingsbury, Paul Reese, Carolyn Joy. Thank you all for supporting this. I hope that you feel like what you're giving into is worth is worth the, the time, the energy, and the financial contribution you're giving to make episodes like this possible. I can't do without you. Thank you all for listening. If you want to get involved and become a member, feel free to head over to the Deep Talks Patreon page in the, the link I provide in the description of this podcast. You could also, if you wanted to help other people discover this podcast, you could do a simple step, and that is just leave a review on Apple Podcasts which is still the number one place people go to find and subscribe to podcasts, even if you listen on other platforms. Leaving a review there helps other people see that this might be something that is of interest to them. So if you did that, I'd highly appreciate it too. You don't have to butter me up or anything like that. If you feel like it's been valuable, feel free to share those reasons why with others. And finally, I always, the biggest thing I love to get is feedback from you all after you listen to an episode. You can find me on Twitter to tell me what you agreed with, disagreed with, the ideas that came to you as you were listening, points of connection to other ideas. I love hearing all that stuff. So you could either find me on Twitter or uh, if you become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can message me there or leave a comment on this week's episode and uh, I respond to all of those on on Patreon and I do my best on, on Twitter as well. So thanks for listening and until next time, we'll talk again soon.